sort of sidetracked with all the busyness and, and craziness of the season. Not that that stuff is intrinsically bad, the presents and the parties and, and, and the decorations. Those can be wonderful ways, of course, of, of celebrating the Lord. But often that sort of takes the place of the Lord. And we're sort of saying, let's, let's kind of hit the, the, the reboot button. Let's sort of restart things. Let's have a little reboot on the Christmas season. And let's seek to really make this season all that it ought to be. Right? And we started with the first week looking at, well, hey, if we want this season to be all that it ought to be. We can't lose sight of what it's really all about, right? We need to be focused on what this season's all about, and that's, of course, Christ. Uh, And not just specifically Christ, but, of course, a little more specifically, his birth. It's Christ, but also Christ that he came, that he came to this earth, and he came with a purpose, of course, right? He came to rescue us. And so we want to make sure, that's sort of week one of this series, we want to make sure we don't lose sight of what this season's all about. It's all about Christ, all about celebrating him, and more specifically, right, that he came, and he came to rescue us from our sin, to set us free from that enslavement to sin. So that's sort of the first week, you know, if we want to have this season be what it ought to be, let's make sure we don't lose sight of what it's all about. But then for the next couple weeks, and and continuing even into this week, we're looking at some spiritual disciplines and saying, well, if we want this season to be all that it's supposed to be, all that it ought to be, uh, right, what we can recognize is there are certain uh, spiritual disciplines that if we practice them, if we live them out, can help to make this season what it ought to be, what it's supposed to be. Right, so we looked at a, a couple different things. Right, we certainly looked at uh, really solitude and prayer, taking the time to get away. There's so much busyness in this season. It's so easy to get caught up in that. I do at times, right, you know, all that needs to be done, especially with four kids at home, you know, there's the long list of all the presents I got to buy. I'll be honest, Liz sort of takes care of most of that, in all fairness, and all the wrapping that needs to be done, and, and even on December 22nd, still needs to be done in the next couple days, though again, in fairness, probably Liz does most of that, but still, there's always so much to do, and it's easy to sort of get caught up in that, and it's just so busy and fast-paced. Life is like that for us naturally, but then you add in all the Christmas season obligations, uh, and it gets all the crazier, and so we sort of said, well, you know, we need to take time, of course, right, just to get away from all that, get away from the distractions, just to be alone, have some solitude with the Lord, and then in that alone time with the Lord, just to be in prayer with him, just to, to fellowship with him, just to commune with him, right? So we talked about that solitude and prayer. We also talked about service, recognizing that, well, hey, sort of what is this season all about? We kind of talked about that, but well, it's about Christ coming here. But he came to serve us, right, by going to a cross. He served us by going to a cross, taking our place, the punishment we deserve so that through faith in him we might be forgiven and and have everlasting life. And then we recognize, well, he says, not only did I serve you, but now I call you, my my people, my followers, to go and do likewise and serve others. And so if this is a season of celebrating that Christ came to serve us by going to a cross, and we recognize, well, he calls us to go and serve others, then this certainly should be a season of serving others, following Christ's lead and serving others. And so we looked at service as well as a spiritual discipline that can can really help to make this season all that it ought to be. And now today, for the last sermon in this series, we're going to look at celebration. Not that there aren't other spiritual disciplines that can help make this Christmas season all that it ought to be, but but these are really uh, the ones that I wanted to focus in on. And so I want to look at celebration, right? If we think of this season as sort of what it is, it's certainly a time of celebration. As we think of, you know, what it's all about, you know, going back to week one, it's about Christ, him coming, right, his birth, and coming to rescue us. And how can we respond to that as we sort of focus on that and, and 
put our minds, focus our minds and hearts on that, how can we not respond with just this joyful celebration that, that though we were rightfully stuck in our sin under judgment, right, deserving that, rightfully so, yet God in love came and he came and rescued us. And, and the only appropriate response is just praise, thanksgiving, worship, and of course, celebration, a joyful celebration of Christ and his coming on our behalf to rescue us. And so if you think of this season, this certainly through and through, if we want the season to be what it ought to be, and not just the whole Advent season, but even thinking Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, all of it, right, it should be characterized by celebration. And so I want to take a look at some, some passage, the passages that really illustrate this theme, the spiritual discipline of celebration. And I want to start by looking at Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and you can flip there if you'd like. And this is Paul writing, and this is what he says. Now, he doesn't specifically mention celebration. He's talking about joy here, but the two naturally go hand in hand, and we'll talk about that. So Philippians 4.4, 4, here's what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And at this point, it's almost like for Paul, it's like, you know, that's not good enough just to say it once. This is so important. This, is, this should so much be just sort of part of the fabric of the Christian life, what, what the Christian life ought to look like, that, hey, I need to say it not just once, but I'll say it again. And in fact, he says it numerous times. It's all over the place in, in the book of Philippians. But he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Right? This is something that, that Christians ought to exhibit in their lives. We ought to be a people of joy. And why not? I mean, we have the greatest thing to be rejoicing in. It's the Lord, the Lord himself, and what he's done for us, rescuing us, of course, from our sin, from that enslavement to sin, when we were sort of stuck in it, no hope on our own, yet he came in love, rescued us, so that now we might be forgiven and have everlasting life and dwell with him and have fellowship with him forever and ever and ever. And so we have this greatest joy, this most wondrous thing, and so we ought to be the most joyous people. And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, you as followers of the Lord, you ought to be rejoicing. And of course, that joy, right, that rejoicing, he says, is in the Lord, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Our joy isn't in sort of the materialistic things of this life, the things of the world. No, our joy is in the Lord, and it is something that we ought to be exhibiting in our lives always. Rejoice in the Lord always, and it's like, this is so important. I need to say it again rejoice. And again, I know here he's not exactly using the word celebration, but if we think about it, joy is sort of the foundation of celebration. In a sense, joy is celebration, but sort of in an inward way. It's celebration of the heart that sort of then naturally, if you're just filled with this wondrous joy in your heart, you're just sort of naturally going to overflow in that joy with outward acts of celebration in regard to the thing that you were just filled with joy about. So we are to be a people of joy, and that joy is to be in the Lord, and we're to be experiencing that joy all the time, 24-7, just rejoicing in the Lord, that we are his, that we're forgiven, that, that we belong to him, that we've been reconciled to him, that we have fellowship with him, and, and that we will one day be made perfect and dwell with him in the fullness of his presence and glory forever and ever and ever, and we ought to be rejoicing in that 24-7 all the time, right? And if we're just overflowing with joy in that, it's only natural that not only are we going to be a people of joy, but a people of celebration as well, that in that joy, we're just naturally overflowing with that, going to be celebrating the Lord and all that we have in him. 
Right, so this is something that isn't just for the Advent season. It's not, and we sort of talked about that with the other spiritual disciplines. It's not like you just do this for a few weeks during the Christmas season, and then, okay, you can be done with celebration or service or, you know, solitude and prayer and all that. No, this should just be part of, of our daily lives and something we should be living out all the time, and we should be celebrating the Lord all the time. But sort of how much more so in this season that we've set aside for remembering the Lord and this wondrous thing that he has done coming to this earth, becoming one of us to go and rescue us from our sin, how much more so should this be a time of joyful celebration? And what we see in Scripture, and we're actually going to turn to 2 Chronicles. You can do that now if you'd like. 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 2 through 14, and then we're actually going to sort of skip over chapter, chapter 6, and we'll go to chapter 7 and read verses 1 through 10. Right? But what we're going to see here, even in the Old Testament, you could look elsewhere to establish this principle, but we're going to look at this particular story. Right? We see in the Old Testament here this pattern of when something particularly remarkable and special and wondrous happens and takes place, the appropriate response is just to go and celebrate. When the Lord does something wondrous, the response that's sort of just natural and you ought to overflow it is just to celebrate, to throw a party, to rejoice and celebrate, right? And not only did they do that in the Old Testament, but what I'm sort of saying and where we're going to be going with this is to say, well, when an even greater thing than what we're going to look at here in Second, uh, Second Chronicles, when an even greater thing happens than that, which is Christ himself coming to this earth to go and save us from our sin, again, how much more so ought we to be just throwing a party, celebrating, uh, pulling out this, all the stops, just joyfully celebrating the Lord. So we're going to see here, we'll dig in, we'll read this, but we'll see this principle that it's right and appropriate to celebrate when something wondrous and glorious happens. And so let me read it for us. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 2 through 14. It says, Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel. I'll actually pause here. I'll set the context a little bit before we go further. So what has happened is, is the temple has just been built, right? It's completed. It's finally done. It's finished. Right before that, there was the tabernacle, but that wasn't a permanent structure. But now, great, the temple has just been built, just been completed, and now it's time to, uh, to dedicate the temple. And as part of that, it's time to bring up the ark, which was already in Jerusalem, but sort of elsewhere in the city. Bring that up to the temple. All of the other sort of holy vessels that would have been a part of, of the worship in the tabernacle, but now would be used in the temple. Time to bring that all to the temple uh, and do this dedication, right? That's sort of the setting of this, and so that's what's taking place here. So it says, then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. Right, so it's, sort of, it's already in Jerusalem, but it's sort of in a lower part of Jerusalem. Now it's time to bring it up to where the temple itself is. It says, And all the Israelites came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. So this festival in the seventh month, right? These, this dedication of the temple is happening to somewhat coincide with the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. So they're happening at the same time, and that's what's being said here. And then it says, when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The Levitical priests carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. 
The priest then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and covered the Ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends extending from the Ark could be seen from in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Haman, Jedithan, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The, trumpet, the trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Right, and we'll then pick back up in, in chapter 7. But already, this is sort of not the, the, the greatest part of the celebration. We're going to see that in, in chapter 7 as we read it. But already, right, there's celebration taking place. This is something that is a, a particularly wondrous and special event. Yes, there was the tabernacle before this time, and that was great. But now there's finally this permanent structure, permanent dwelling place for the Lord, for him to dwell in the midst of his people, right? And so it's time to dedicate this temple. It's time to bring all those furnishings, the ark certainly being central, right? Bring that up uh, from where it was in the tabernacle, bring it to the temple. And this is just a wondrous and joy-filled thing. And so what are the people doing? Well, they're, they're slaughtering all sorts of animals, offering up sacrifices to the Lord, of course. There's music, there's celebration, there's worship, right? A wondrous thing is happening. And their response is, well, we're just so over flowing with joy. We're so filled with joy that we can't help it. We can't contain it. We just want to celebrate what's going on here. And we're going to see that that continues here in chapter 7. So verse 6, uh, chapter 6 that is, is just, I'll fill in the gaps here, is Solomon. He has some words that he says, and then there's a prayer uh, that he prays, and then we pick that up here in chapter 7, uh, verse 1. And it says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. Right, so what's going on here? Even these sacrifices, right, specifically, if we actually look at 1 Kings, which also recounts these events, uh, these sacrifices here, the 22,000 head of cattle, the 120,000 sheep uh, and goats, 
are mentioned as peace offerings, or sometimes also translated as fellowship offerings. Uh, and a large part of the, the body of the fellowship or peace offerings, the meat of the offering, was eaten by the people. Right, so certainly it was an act of worship and honoring the Lord, but the idea also is that you would come, you'd honor the Lord with this sacrifice, right, offer up this peace offering, this peace sacrifice, fellowship offering to the Lord, but then there was also sort of this fellowshipping that would take place with the Lord as you would now feast on the meat of this animal and sort of celebrate and have peace and sort of have fellowship with the Lord as you eat this wonderful meal, this meat, uh, in the presence of the Lord right there at the temple. Right, so in a sense, what's going on here, if we think about it, is, is Solomon. Solomon alone is offering up 22,000 head of cattle, cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. Uh, but then it also says, right, not just the king, but then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. So, so a whole host, almost sort of an innumerable number of sacrifices, these peace offerings. There were other offerings uh, offered up as well, but these specifically are peace offerings. So a whole host of these peace or fellowship offerings are being offered up, certainly in honor to the Lord as part of the dedication uh, of this temple, but also sort of as food for a great feast and a great celebration. This would be the idea. Yes, we're honoring the Lord, we're worshiping him, but we also now want to fellowship with the Lord and eat this, this wondrous meal in fellowship with the Lord in his presence. And so that's what they do. And in fact, as we're going to read on, it goes on for seven days. They have this seven-day party, this seven-day celebration and feasting where they're just, there's music we're going to read about, right? They're worshiping the Lord, they're praising him, there's this great celebration, great feast, great food, right? Having their steaks, enjoying themselves as they rightfully should. A wondrous, glorious thing is happening. The temple has been built, right? They've just seen the Lord fill this temple with his presence, the glory of the Lord uh, filling the temple. Uh, this is a place where now they can go up and, and draw near to the Lord and worship him and praise him and offer up sacrifices. And they're just overjoyed. And the response is, we just got a party. We just have to celebrate. And not just for an hour, not just for a day. No, we're going to do this for seven days. And that's what they do. And we'll see it as we read on. It says, uh, reading on verse 6, uh, the priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, and all the Israelites were standing, right? So now we have the musical instruments, right? This is part of the celebration. They're, they're feasting. There's, there's a meal that they're partaking of in the presence of the Lord, fellowshipping with him as they're worshiping, honoring him. But there's music. They're praising the Lord, worshiping him. And it, it's this celebratory praise and worship. It's this great celebration. And it goes on. Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord. And there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the fellowship offerings because the bronze altar he had made could not hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat portions. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days and all Israel with him. And here at this point, the festival, it's actually referring to Sukkot. What we actually see here, and it's made a little bit more clear as we read on, is in a sense there was 14 plus one, or you could sort of say 15, days of, of celebration and feasting. First, there was seven days of the celebration of this dedication of the temple. So they dedicated the temple. They're celebrating for seven days. And then it winds up wonderfully running right into the, the seven-day 
uh, feast and celebration of Sukkot. And then that celebration, that feast ended with an eighth day where there was sort of this holy assembly, sacred assembly, uh, that would, where they would gather on the eighth day. And that's what's going on here. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days and all Israel with him. A vast assembly, people from Lebo Hamath to the Wadi of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held an assembly for they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days. And not just the altar, it's certainly the whole temple, but here it's referencing specifically the altar. But it says they celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival, meaning Sukkot, for seven days more. So there's this 14 days of celebration, seven for the dedication, right? And then seven more for, for this Feast of, of Tabernacles for Sukkot. And then sort of that, that holy convocation on the eighth day. So then it says, on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people Israel. And where do I want to go with this, right? Very clearly what we see is these people, right? The people of Israel here, Celebrating, And again, they're sort of pulling out all the stops. They're, they're going to celebrate like never before. They're going to have an incredible party and an appropriate party, the way they should, right? There's this wondrous thing happening that God has done, right? He has commanded, of course, David certainly set aside a lot of the resources for the, ta for the temple. But of course, now it's Solomon's king, and it's time for him to build the temple, and that's what he does. He builds the temple, and finally it's completed, it's done, uh, and it's time to dedicate it. And so they do that, and right, God, of course, shows up. He fills this place with his presence, and the people are in awe, right? His glory fills the temple, right? And what's the natural response to all of this now that there's this place right there uh, in the midst of Israel, specifically right in the midst of Jerusalem there, where God now is dwelling in the midst of his people, right? And they can go there, and they can draw near to him and worship him uh, at this place. And, and it's something that has caused for great joy in their response. In this joy, is just to say, we have to celebrate. This wondrous thing has happened, and, and what can we do other than just to, to celebrate what has taken place. And so they did, and they have this seven-day feast, this seven-day celebration of this dedication of the temple. And I think about it and say, well, you know, if we look at Christmas, there's this thing that has taken place, right, the birth of Christ, which is far greater than just the finishing of the temple, right? The temple was great and it was wonderful, uh, and that was a great blessing for the people of Israel, but something far greater has taken place. God himself has come to this earth, become one of us, to then go and rescue us, to save us from our sin, to make atonement for sin so that we might be forgiven and be with him forever and ever and ever, right? This far greater greater thing has happened, and our response should be, well, hey, if the people of Israel celebrated, and man, they knew how to throw a party, they celebrated big time, and they were just celebrating the temple and its completion and, and now its dedication, and if we have this far greater thing that has taken place, and we've set aside this, this season of Advent, and even specifically sort of Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, to celebrate this, and this is such a wondrous and even more glorious thing than the temple, how much more so should we be celebrating, right, Christ, his birth, coming to this earth, right, of course, to rescue us. All the more so we ought to be celebrating that than even what the Israelites were celebrating with the temple. And in fact, even if we think about it, there's actually an awful lot of parallels between the two. In a sense, if we think of the temple and sort of uh, all that sort of went with the temple, sort of the, the, the sacrifices and worship and all that went with the temple, in many ways it's really just a foreshadowing of, of all that is in Christ, of Christ and all that we have in him. 
right? And if you think about, you know, the people here, the Israelites, and what they're celebrating, certainly they're celebrating the temple, it's dedication, but, but even a little more specifically, they're celebrating now that God has come and dwelled in their midst, right? He is dwelling in their midst in this temple, in the Holy of Holies, right? God has come down, and he is now dwelling in their midst, and they have seen his glory filling this temple. Well, if you think about it, that sounds an awful lot like John chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, and it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? And so, right, the people here of Israel, they're, they're celebrating, in a sense, what is just a shadow of the real deal, the reality that's in Christ, right? Just as in the temple, yep, God came, and he dwelt in the midst of his people, and, and he showed forth his glory there, and filled the temple with his glory, but in a, in a far greater way, he has come and dwelt among us, and, and we, we have seen his glory, right, as John says, right? His glory is made manifest, of course, in, in the sun, right? But, of course, the parallels even continue further. If we think of the temple and sort of what goes along with the temple. Well, this was a place for sacrifices to be offered. And part of what the people would have been celebrating is, oh, this is wonderful. Now, it's not just that we have this, this temporary uh, sort of structure, the tabernacle, but now we have this permanent structure where we can draw near to the Lord and offer up sacrifices. And certainly, centrally, a uh, part of that would have been right sacrifices for sin, uh, sacrifices for atonement of sin. Not that those sacrifices really truly made atonement for sin. That's only in Christ. But they were nonetheless symbolic of that, right? And, and in a sense, right, if we realize this, those sacrifices and the temple, the temple worship and the sacrifices that were offered there, that's all really a foreshadowing of Christ. Yet they were celebrating these symbolic, right, sacrifices for, for atonement for sin, and they celebrated it big time, right, a seven-day party, and yet now, right, Christ has come. If we think of Christmas, what we're celebrating, right, he came, and he came for the purpose of being that true sacrifice for atonement, right? That true sacrifice for sin, that true sin offering that makes atonement for sin. And so again, if they celebrated in a big way sort of just the shadow, how much more so should we celebrate the reality that is in Christ, right? The temple, yep, that's where in a symbolic way, uh, of course, atonement was made. But Christ is the real deal, the true atonement. He is the real sacrifice that makes atonement for sin. But again, if we continue to look at the parallels, right, and see that, in a sense, the temple and all that goes with it is just sort of a foreshadowing, a shadow of the reality that's in Christ, right? Well, also part of what the people of Israel would have been celebrating is, well, now there's this place, this permanent dwelling place of God where we can now go and we can draw near to him, right? We can draw near to him as his people and go and worship him and have fellowship with him. But the reality is there were always barriers. There were always obstacles, right? There was a veil that separated them from the Lord. Lord and his presence in the Holy of Holies. Uh, there were these priests, these human priests who served as intermediaries and all of this. So yes, they could draw near to the Lord and worship him, but there were always these sort of obstacles or barriers in a sense. Yet in Christ, of course, right, because he has made atonement for sin, right, he has torn down those barriers. He's torn the veil, right? We no longer have need of sort of human earthly priests. Of course, Christ is our true and great high priest, but we have no more need for, for further intermediaries, but now we have true and 
direct access to God to come before him into his presence just to worship, to praise him. So while the temple was a place of drawing near to the Lord, fellowshipping with him, worshiping, worshiping him, of course, yet we have that in such a far greater way in Christ because he has removed all of those barriers and now we have full direct access to God. And so again, we see that the temple and all that goes with it is just sort of in a sense a shadow of the reality that's in Christ. And again, sort of coming back to the point, but if the people of Israel celebrated that shadow so greatly, and now we have the reality in Christ, right, and we think of his coming to, to this earth, right, his birth, to go in and make atonement for sin so that then we could have fellowship with God, we could, we could draw near to him. As we think of all of that, our response, recognizing the reality in Christ is, man, we ought to celebrate, and celebrate all the more so, because this is so immeasurably greater than just the shadow that the temple was. We have the real deal in Christ. And so I really want to challenge us this Advent season. I know there's just sort of a few days left. You know, today's the 22nd. We got the 23rd, Christmas Eve, then Christmas Day. But even with the little bit of time that's left, and not that this should, should suddenly end on Christ, you know, after Christmas Day once it's the 26th, but sort of how much more so in this season, I really want to challenge us to really and truly and profoundly celebrate Christ. Right, We have this wondrous and glorious joy, and it is the Lord. It is the Lord himself. It is that he came and became one of us to take our place, take the punishment we deserve, so that, of course, right, we might be forgiven through faith in him and have everlasting life in him. And this is so wondrous and glorious, far more glorious than just the temple itself. And if they celebrated that so wondrously, how much more so ought we to celebrate the Lord and his birth? Right, and certainly, as I think of, of celebration, right, and, and celebrating the Lord, probably a lot of us would say, "Well, we do that, right? We do that at Christmas time." You know, maybe you figure, you know, you get together with your family or your friends, your loved ones. Maybe it's on Christmas Eve. <clears throat> Maybe it's Christmas Day. Uh, maybe you have other parties sort of leading up to it. You know, I think I was talking to Wayne and, and his family got together just yesterday because everybody else is going separate ways on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, right? But it, it, you might be thinking, yeah, well, we already celebrate that. You're sort of telling us to do something, Pastor Steve, that we already do. And I think we do, in fact, do it, but only in part. I think all too often our celebration, if we're really honest with ourselves, and I, I'm guilty of this certainly, is, is if we really think about our celebration maybe as we gather with with family or friends, how much of that is truly focused on Christ and really a celebration of him and who he is and his coming, his birth, and why he came to rescue us from our sin. I think all too often, if we're honest, we're just sort of celebrating the fun time of getting together with family. We get to be together with family, and family's a great blessing and, and cause for celebration and joy, but, but nowhere near the same cause for celebration as Christ himself is. But I think all too often, you know, Christmas Eve happens, Christmas Day, or other get-togethers and celebrations, and, and we just sort of enjoy one another's company, and yet Christ winds up being sort of peripheral, sort of on the fringes of that whole celebration when the reality is he should be central. The whole celebration ought to be about him, all about him and what he has done for us, coming to this earth and rescuing us from our sin, right? So I, I want for us this season to really place the focus on Christ uh, as we celebrate. Yes, we like to celebrate and we ought to celebrate as Christians, right? We ought to be a people of joy, a people of joyful celebration, but we need to remember what we ought to be celebrating. And of course, most centrally, it's the Lord himself, it is God, it is Christ, and what he has done for us. And certainly that celebration 
celebration can take lots of different forms. I'm not going to tell you exactly how you need to celebrate the Lord, right? You could celebrate by, as we talked about, getting together with family, with friends, and, and maybe you're going to open up your Bibles and you're going to read that story from Scripture of, of, of Christ's birth and just sort of marvel at, at what took place, right? And maybe you're going to sing, you know, wondrous hymns, Christmas carols, and just praise the Lord, and that's all a great way of celebrating, right? Maybe that's how you're going to celebrate. Probably in part you're going to celebrate by coming here Christmas Eve for our service. That's another great way to celebrate. But celebration could look a little bit different as well. It could be you, in fact, getting away from all the distractions, sort of thinking of week two, solitude and prayer. Maybe part of your celebration is, I just want to go and be alone with the Lord. And when I'm one-on-one -on -one with the Lord, just, just celebrate what he has done, to, just to worship him, uh, just to marvel at what he did, just be in awe of him and celebrate him and praise him. And maybe you'll just be alone with the Lord, singing at the top of your lungs, praising him, and you don't care if you hit all the notes as you're singing Christmas carols, right? You're just overjoyed with the Lord and what he has done for you, right? Celebration can look a whole host of, can look like a lot of different things. It can make itself manifest in a whole host of different ways. But fundamentally, what I really want to challenge us to live out is real and true and profound celebration. That, that's what Advent is about. That's what Christmas is about. It is a time that we have set aside for truly, profoundly, greatly celebrating this wondrous thing that, that happened oh so long ago, right? God himself in love coming here to rescue us. When we had no hope on our own, stuck in our sin, he came here to rescue us and save us from it, right? And I want us to take the time and challenge us to really and truly remember that and joyfully celebrate Christ and his birth this season. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, Thank you for the example here that we see in Scripture of the people of Israel just celebrating, celebrating something that they were right to celebrate, the completion of the temple and its dedication, and now there was this place where you dwelled in their midst and your glory filled this place, Lord, and now they could draw near to you and, and worship you. And what wondrous cause for celebration, but we realize we have something so far and vastly greater that we ought to be celebrating. That temple, that was just a shadow of the reality in Christ. And Lord Jesus, this Christmas season, what remains of it, we certainly want to place you front and center, and we want to remember the wonder of you and your birth and celebrate it the way it ought to be celebrated to the utmost, just overflowing with joy, a joy that is in you and what you have done for us, and in that just wondrous, profound joy just to overflow in celebration, where whether we're gathered with family and friends, whether we're alone at all times, every day, where we're just in our heart of hearts celebrating you and, and, and living that out with outward acts of celebration that just honor you and glorify you in every way. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us that that joy in our hearts that just wells up to overflowing and causes us to joyfully celebrate you as you so rightfully deserve, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.